everyone. I'm Larissa Russell of Creative You, and I'm your host of the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Here's where we talk about the connection between creativity and healing by interviewing amazing creatives, spectacular healers, and inspiring people who have used creativity in their healing. What does it mean to be creative? What is creativity? You don't have to write a best-selling book or paint a masterpiece or even play in a rock band. Creativity is in everything that we do, in the ways we think, in the way we run a business, in our everyday lives, we are creative all the time. Let's talk about how we are creative and how creativity helps us heal mentally, physically, and emotionally, right now on the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm Larissa Russell from Creative You, and I have today with me Lindsay Wisner. She's a clinical psychologist in Long Island, New York. She graduated from Georgetown University in 1999 and was awarded a fellowship in child development at the NIH-NICHD. Yeah, it just means National Institute of Health. It's okay. (laughs) Oh, okay. There we go. (laughs) So that's important. It's it's like one of those really big places. I even remember that. (laughs) Uh, She received her doctorate from CW Post, LIU, and went on to pursue postdoctorate training at the American Institute of psychoanalysis. Wow, you sound like so, I know, yeah. so fancy right there. I always yeah. say that's my stuffy bio. I'm a lot less stuffy though. <laughs> Dr. Wisner is the current host of the Neurotic Nourishment podcast and the co-author of upcoming book 10 Steps to Finding Happy. This book will be released on March 20th, 2020 in accordance with the United Nations International Day of Happiness. So welcome Lindsay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can you share some of your story and your path that's brought you here? Sure. Um, so I, I think I have always, well, I love creativity as an outlet. I have always been a very poor artist, but very good with words. Mm-hmm. So I, I, as I've said, I wrote my first book at, um, at uh, when I was seven and I typed it on a typewriter because that was what was in my house. And then I, um, I put it in a little binder and it was a really horrible book. I guarantee you, Rag- Raggedy Ann, Andy, time travel. I think there was like a unicorn in there somewhere, but uh, it was a way for me to express myself. Mm-hmm. And recently I was working on another project of mine and I was thinking about the fact that my books and my stories were a way of making my life uh, kind of what I wanted to be or what I could escape to or something, you know, something where if you could dream it, you could do it. Although Raggedy Ann and Andy and time travel less so, but um, I, you know, I've always loved writing and when I went to college, I went with the intention of being an English major and being a writer. However, uh, there's not really like a thing where you can sign up to major in writing books and people, you know, then you do it. That's not a thing, but I didn't know that. And I was not a fan and still am not a fan of any sort of a journalistic take on it. Mm-hmm. And so I went through the you know, as, went in as an English major, discovered psychology, fell like in a non-romantic le- way in love with this professor and his teaching and decided I had to major, you know, double major in psychology. I went to him after class one day to ask him a question 
and it was like a subtle lead into whether or not I should double major in psychology. And he gave me like one of these up and down in retrospect, totally sexist like looks and said, don't major in psychology. You'll never do anything with it. So because um, I'm me, I like cried for two seconds, walked away, walked downstairs, two flights to the registrar and signed up to double major because, mm -mm, you know. I, I've got a bit of an attitude problem when it comes to someone telling me what I can't do, especially based on my looks, appearance, their five-second impression, whatever that was. Um, so I went to graduate school. I got my doctorate. I continued to write for publications along the way, and I wrote a novel, my first full-length novel right before graduate school. Uh, did not get published humorously. I had several like bites on the on the hook, but I started graduate school in on September 9th of 2001, and September 11th of 2001 was the World Trade Center, and the entire publishing industry, particularly in Manhattan, sort of fell apart. Which is not to say that it would have been published anyway. It probably wasn't that good. I uh, I continued along the way, and actually, my dissertation for my doctorate was on music listening and personality. And I tried to figure out the answer to what type of personality traits were more drawn to larger quantities of music. And um, the answer was sort of vague and wishy-washy, but it counted. They gave me a doctorate, <laughs> and then a few in uh, actually six years ago almost exactly six years ago to the day, my mother-in-law suddenly uh, dropped dead. My, right after her funeral, we found out my 14-year-old cat had cancer. It's, trust me, it's like this horrible horror story. I had a, a relative who got sent away to prison and my best friend moved out of state and <laughs> I was kind of depressed. And so a uh, common sign of depression is early morning wakings. And so I would get up in the morning and I started writing. And I wrote, uh, I wrote another novel and I enjoyed it. And then on a whim, I submitted an excerpt of it to Cosmopolitan magazine. Mm -hmm. And this was 2014. And I was chosen as the first ever fiction winner for Cosmopolitan magazine. And they published it. And they gave me a tour of the office. But I think they were looking for me to be like a 17-year-old. And I was like a 30-something with two kids. So <laughs> a few minutes of awkwardness. But they were lovely. And this eventually launched me to getting an agent for fiction. And I joined a writer's group. And there I met my uh, co-author for this upcoming book. Because we would sort of workshop each other's fiction. And you know, on and off for about three, four years, we worked together. And then she contacted me about a year and a half ago and said, hey, will you read this piece that I'm working on? And I read it and I was like, it's good, but I think I could make it better. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done, you know, putting myself out there. But she, it turns out she had sort of wanted to ask me, but didn't know how. And, you know, because it's a pop psychology self-help book. So it was it's a. It's funny how the world is linear-ish if you look at it from the right angle. Um, 
Oh, <laughs> so it's been quite a roller coaster to get you where you are. Today. I know. Was my answer supposed to be much smaller? No, that was a perfect answer. That was oh, your thanks. answer. Thank God, because my ADHD is well controlled, but not perfect. So <laughs> <laughs> my partner says that all the time too, because she just bounces off of everything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> so what does healing with creativity mean to you? Um, I, you know, there was a time that I, in, I looked into it for my practice. I was very into yoga and I looked into the, one of my yoga teachers actually became an art therapist and she is actually one of the expert writers in our book. We have 24 expert writers, everything came full circle. But there is something to be said about using what's going on inside and putting it on the outside. Uh, it's a physical, mental removal, I guess, of, you know, removal, displacement of your emotions, but in a good way, I guess mm -hmm. I, I could call it a healthy defense mechanism. You know, a lot of the grief that I've felt, if I look back at the, the times when I sat down and wrote novels, because there were, I've written about three or four, none have been published, but I'm not giving up of the, the fiction, obviously nonfiction is coming up. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on my second nonfiction book. But if I look back at the fiction, it was always me trying to work through something that either my brain or my heart couldn't grasp and couldn't communicate to, to myself, to others, uh, to the people who were hurting me. So I think it's a really healthy way to, it's been a really healthy way for me to get my feelings out and I, I was recently diagnosed with ADHD like four months ago, basically in the course of filling out forms about my child, <laughs> there was this aha light bulb and I was like, oh man. And, um, and I went to the neurologist. I was like, this is going to sound crazy. I'm a woman. I'm a doctor. I don't fall into the, you know, most likely. And he said, well, do you procrastinate for studying papers? I said, oh, I can't do that because I can only spend so much time on, uh, you know, so, <laughs> so that was the little ding light. But, um, but if I look back, it was always something I was trying to work through. And I think the, the forced focus of creativity, you know, for me, I, I understand myself a lot better in retrospect, really gave me the opportunity to express myself and to, deal with whatever you know messy feelings were going on at the time mm -hmm. and and I'm sure there's something about happy art but I think I don't know for me it's been um the the messier feelings that have come out in my work yeah that 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 makes perfect sense when you're going through things right yeah and I, I think that's one of the things that people believe is that art or creativity in any way it's all happy joyful you know that book you really uh, people think that uh, you know i get that a lot and it's like no it's about working through and digging deep if you're really doing it in my mind properly yeah i just <laughs> think deep. of like i think of like van gogh and you know pollock and picasso and it yeah. didn't end well for any of those people i don't think <laughs> <laughs> no, all dead. All dead. All dead. Yeah. That happens though. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that was the creativity though, but yeah. <laughs> yeah but the ear thing, the ear yeah, thing. Okay. The ear thing. I'll give yeah. that to you. Yeah. Right. Mental illness and genius. I think like, you know, fine line. Very true. Very true. But I think we glaze over that in our society now though, right? Because of the stigma with 
um, mental health. I think art is that, that happy place that people have. And I think um, uh, this is what I've seen, you know, uh, being an artist for many years and people have an expectation um, and they might know of artists from before that were not mentally well, but they don't necessarily associate that with today's artists. So, yeah, I, I'm, I, I agree. I'm also pretty angry about the stigmatization of mental health. So I totally understand that. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> so do you think there's a driving force that inspires you? Absolutely. My, it's funny, the other day my husband said this, we've been together 20 years, married almost 15, and I'd never heard him say it out loud, and when he, he said it, I was like, yeah, that fits. He called me the queen of second chances, and I think it is true for whatever reason. I like the story about the psychology professor, you know, there's a little bit of a an FU going on inside me. See, I kept it clean. Um, <laughs> it was a struggle. But, you know, I also believe that I'm going to do it once and then I'm going to learn how to do it better. And then I'm going to do it again. And then, I mean, listen, this, uh, podcasting has been my newest struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, my little baby is, I think, 20, oh, 26 today episodes old. And my co-host actually quit two weeks ago, but it, we call it a conscious uncoupling and we're still very close, but it's been a ride of learning. And I have no doubt that if I don't get it right the first time, I'll get it right the 81st time. You know, I think I'm really stubborn and a little OCD, so. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I'm understanding you. It's like, yeah. like two people just, you know, removed on the planet and, uh, but same person. <laughs> which happens, which happens a lot. I also think my, that sort of um, attempt at mastery has to do with uh, anxiety or my upbringing, uh, sort of a hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. And so I pay more attention to things that other people don't. And people will often tell me I'm thinking too hard about it. <laughs> And I've never heard that. No. Nope. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and you know what? I stayed alive through my youth and usually I'm right. And it just takes a while for other people to be like, you got that right. You know, so which is not to say I'm always right. It's just that I, Most of the I time. turned. Well, I, you know, listen, I, I was a dumbass kid and flying by the seat of my pants, but I was also super aware of my surroundings in order to find out what was safe emotionally and what was not. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine told me that I told, turned 42 in September and I was, I've dreaded every like major milestone, no clue why, but she was like, you will love it. You will love what happens when you start feeling comfortable in your own skin. I don't think I'm ever physically going to feel comfortable in my own skin. I still have clothes in my closet from high school that I swear I'll fit into one day, but mentally and emotionally, I'm getting a lot better at knowing how to put myself forward and my needs forward and also what I bring to the table, you know, creatively, intellectually, um, yeah. you so, know, physically, yeah. I, I wish my boobs were less saggy, but we all have our thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As a grandmother, I, I you know, it, I, I gave up on that a long time ago. So 
Yeah. I don't think I ever had perky boobs because I've always been large breasted, but I still like to pretend that it's just the kids and age, even though it was never there. But. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I like to blame the kids for everything. So <laughs> see, same. Yeah. Same. <laughs> so how, how has a past pain informed your life purposes? I know you've kind of touched on this. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. Um, it's a really good question with a really complicated answer. I think that when I was, um, I, I think I was 12 or 13, my, my mother, who's always been a bit different, um, suffered a traumatic brain injury in a car accident. And that was when different became a little bit eccentric. Like I would come home and there would, there was a dog on the bed and, you know, she said, I have to have jaw surgery. So I figured if I couldn't have a jaw, I would get a jaws. And it was one of these things that kind of makes sense, but mostly just inside mental institutions. (laughs) Um, and so she was always exciting and creative and, involved. Um, when I was younger, she took, I forget what it's called, like oil chalks. I'm sure there's a word for it. Pastels? The oil pastels? Yes, thank you. And like sketched a bunch of the popular cartoon characters and comic book characters like Annie and Sandy and Mickey Mouse and all over our basement and then invited all the neighborhood kids to come over and color you know, color it in and draw it in, which was, Mm -hmm. it's both really nice and a really manic and eccentric. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But when I became a mom, I really didn't know. It was very confusing to me. I never changed a diaper. I had very mixed feelings about not motherhood. Well, I guess motherhood because I didn't know what was coming. And I also had no idea how to figure out what this thing wanted you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, when they got old enough, my son was born first and then my daughter, I actually relied heavily on art projects because there's a beginning, a middle and end, and there's something to show. So it's like, well, what'd you do with the kids today? Well, this is what I did. And I think that was part of me trying to feel like I was in control of what was going on. Of course, part of me trying to entertain my kids Mm -hmm. and my son is actually very creative. So some part of it worked, you know, this is the kid who's making like cosplay costumes out of cardboard and he's 11, but there was definitely a lot growing up that I, I had to sort of try to incorporate. And, um, I, I have a, a very good friend. I'd say my longest friend, we've been close since we were 11, 10 and it's only recently that she came over to my house and you know witnessed something and was like i always thought you were making it up you know <laughs> like with my you know the house that i grew up in and i was like no it'll be a lot to wake up but um but the more i read the more i learn some of my favorite writers writers artists you know um books they all come from challenge or struggle or having to look at the world differently and then using that to your asset, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So what would you say is your favorite creative healing modality? Oh, writing hands down. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, it's, it's definitely writing. I love 
um, the, the feel of the pen in my hand. I love, I, first of all, I'm adamantly anti Kindle because I want the feel of the books in my hand. We, I also love reading, but we just moved into a new house. And the first thing I did was spend seven hours on the book nook, which is literally why we bought the house. And I alphabetize my books, my husband's books and my kids, they wanted by color. So, um, I, there's something about the written word where I, I get to imagine someone else has written it, but I get to imagine it. And it's just so fun to, to play with for me. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. So what would you say is your greatest accomplishment to date? The surviving count. Um, it absolutely counts. It kind of does. I mean, I think that I would say surviving and growing up and being willing to try or say pretty much anything. Um, I speak my mind to a fault, but I think for a long time, like my voice wasn't allowed to be heard or believed or whatnot. And I, there are very few things I'm afraid to try. Like, I, I don't really like roller coasters. Like, I'll go on if I have to convince a kid to go on. But, but to me, that's not trying something different. It's just faking it for my kids, you know. <laughs> um, but I think, I've, I think I've learned to trust my gut and, and also not let fear control me, which was the whole thing with podcasting. Um, mm-hmm. When my when my co-host quit, it was sort of abruptly. And so, and we were moving the next day and I didn't quite know what to do. And I had this real moment of, can I do this on my own? And I obviously don't know the answer yet because we haven't aired any solo episodes, but there was something to be said about saying, well, what's the worst, you know, how many people are listening to me? Four, 12, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) Um, So I think I've grown into being a lot braver than I was as a kid. Well, that's excellent. Yeah. I I, I think that's ultimately the goal. Yep. Or growing back into the bravery we maybe had as a kid. Yes. Sometimes when we're younger, we're we're not so scared of everything. So maybe growing back into that bravery is what, yeah. (laughs) I agree. No, that's another good way to look at it. It's true. Yeah. So if you could change one aspect of our society through your work, what would it be? Stop it. Is that really the question? Because this is amazing. Yeah, that's really the question. Seriously? So um, I work a lot with suicidal teenagers. Mm. I'm pretty sure you did not see that coming based on my personality. I know. It's a niche that I sort of fell into, and I also have had personal experiences with it. I have not um, attempted suicide or thought about suicide in any significant way, but I do have a family member who has attempted more times, probably, we say seven, but it's probably more than that. Mm. And a couple things. One is I was always encouraged to keep this a secret as a child. And really up until about a year and a half ago, possibly less, um, you know, this was a secret. It was something we brushed over. It was something no one knew, Um, you know, the mental illness aspect and the suicidality aspect of it. And I think that, you know, much like life works in a linear slash non-linear fashion for some of us, I, uh, a patient fell into my lap because uh, 
a child, child, an 18-year-old in a nearby town about 18 months ago committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And then a month after that, there was a second one from that same town. And then in September of this year, there was a 15-year-old in our town. And I, I had started working with, a lot of people don't want to work with suicidal teens. They're impulsive, they're, excuse me, you know, they're um, brash. And obviously uh, it's a litigious society and rightfully so. I would definitely, you know, sue the you know what out of someone who was responsible for my child's well-being. And then, um, you know, God forbid my child took his or her own life. Mm-hmm. But I, after this child in our town committed suicide, our town chose not to call, they chose to call it a tragic accident to protect the parents. And I respect that. And I won't pretend to imagine what, what, you know, that must've been like, but also suicide is very contagious, particularly Mm -hmm. among teens. And it's getting increasingly more so probably in part, it's not a social media thing. It's like a, a 24 hour news coverage thing that includes social media. And so we are, by not talking about it, by not calling it what it is, by overreacting if someone says that they've thought of suicide rather than asking, well, what are the thoughts? And have you had any, you know, do you know how you do it? Do you have a day? Do you have a time? Like pausing to ask actual questions. We're shaming the you know what out of anyone who's experiencing mental illness. We're further isolating them by saying it's not okay to talk about. And we're you know, we're further stigmatizing mental illness and we are going to end up with more dead children and adults, Mm -hmm. but it's happening at younger and younger ages. And I have had many patients that I work with where they go into a psychiatrist who should be more, who is more well-credentialed than I am and should be more knowledgeable. But if they say that they're having thoughts, the next thing you know, they spend seven hours in a uh, an ER, an evaluation, and they leave feeling worse than they can. Mm-hmm. And if someone had just picked up the phone and called me, because I meet with them once or twice a week for 45 to 60 minutes, I can tell you, no, 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 this is, you know, we've discussed this. I'm there. You know, I'm, I establish a relationship. I, um, and so I think we are going to end up with more suicidal teenagers. I think even if you're not suicidal, depression, anxiety, if it's a shame, if it's an embarrassment to talk about it, if kids are only talking about it so they can put it on their college resume as being part of this club, I, I mean, you know, we're failing the system. And also in my particular family instance, the system has failed my relative. I mean, you should not get to attempt it seven, eight, nine times and still be out mm-hmm. there, um, you know, because it's going to happen again. And who knows? So um, the book was written for the purpose of happiness, but this new niche of mine and this, um, and, uh, you know, my, my loved one tried, try, attempted, I think, three more times in the making of the book. And then the fact that we happened to get in with the United Nations as like a day of happiness, mm-hmm. um, it really has driven me towards the idea that let's if the book gains any publicity, attention, promotion, let's use it to sort of push that destigmatizing of mental illness. Whether or not I'll succeed, because I have huge goals and only a half 
cocked way to, you know, establish it. Mm-hmm. But um, the book is called 10 Steps to End the Stigma. And I really want to try to use the hashtag, or I'm sorry, the book is called 10 Steps um, to Happy. And I really want to attempt to use the hashtag 10 Steps and the Stigma. I mean, not only for the book, but honestly, I make like 50 cents a copy. That's not what it's about. It's mm-hmm. more about the bigger issue of of helping everyone, but also especially the kids and the teens. Oh, that that is so close to my heart. I actually really oh good because I thought I you have, were like I thought you were going to be like why did I ask her that question? <laughs> no, that like I was just like so emotional through all of it because my nonprofit that I've started is specifically for LGBT youth because okay. their suicide rate is yep. eight times higher than the average. Youth. Well, it's an underserved it's an underserved population. It's people are. I think frightened to go to a therapist or to find the right therapist or to find someone that's not going to, I mean, everyone brings in their own preconceived notions, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, uh, I it's mean, I would, yeah. so distressing to me. And I mean, no youth really, because I, I, I attempted as a child and have, have struggled with depression myself throughout the years, but uh, just knowing that the LGBT population has that extra layer of stigma on top of the mental health has really um, driven me to, to help. So the, I have a nonprofit that's just in the sort of beginning phases and we're, we're kicking off a podcast and, and trying to get some resources and things in, in place to let them know they're not alone. Right. Yeah. And to, so we want to, you know, share stories and, and let people know that there are places that you can go to. And these are the places that are safe for you. And, these are the people who have been through what you've been through and it does get better. And, you know, it's that little bit that, that I can do as a non-doctor, right? Well, there's also only a little bit that I can do as a doctor. I mean, you're, you have to want to, you have to be comfortable enough telling someone for that person to bring you to therapy. And then everyone has a crisis the first hour or mm-hmm. week or month. And then after that, it becomes less important either to the kid or the parents. And it's a longer term understanding. You know, I, I, I absolutely LGBTQ is one of those underserved populations. There's also minorities and um, males. And recently I've been talking to a lot of people in the polyamorous community, just trying to figure mm. out for me, it's in part, it's in part an intellectual exercise of personal growth, a learning of new things, you know, and, um, a willingness to sort of ask questions like what are our differences, but what are our similarities? And I, I just feel, don't tell my co-author, but I almost feel more passionately about the, and the stigma line than the book. Cause the book is good. It's fine. It's got a lot to contribute, concrete steps, um, mm-hmm. 24 expert writers, but it's the other stuff that runs deeper. And uh, my next book is actually about teenage suicide. And so yeah. I'm, uh, you know, but I just think that I, I just always want to, I feel like I use that hashtag, you know, um, F the stigma and the stigma, whatever it is, because we have to do something. Yeah, we do. We absolutely do. Oh, so what would, what inspirational advice would you give someone who's struggling? Keep going. Yeah. I mean, you don't know why. Listen, I haven't decided if I, believe in God or spirits or universe or 
some sort of emotional connection that we form as humans to survive or a physical biological genome thing that we haven't yet identified by science, but there is something out there that's bigger than you. I mean, there has to be, you know, people ask, do I believe in ghosts? I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know, but I don't know why not. And I don't know why we should be the one thing that stops after death rather than transforms into something else. Mm-hmm. I may have just sounded a bit crazy, but my point is <laughs> there's always something around the corner and it could be better and it could be worse, but you don't, you don't know until you, unless you continue going, you know, and talk to someone. And if that person do- isn't the right person for you, talk to someone else, you know, mm-hmm. Um, any patient that comes into my office, I, I tell them from the beginning, listen, this is just a, a meet, like this is a, a meet and greet. You know, I may work for you. I may not. Just because you're coming in once doesn't mean you're coming in again. And I always make a point to ask at the end of a first session, would you like a second appointment? Because mm-hmm. if you, I don't want someone to be stuck with me or then like, you know, just not come back. And then I'm left wondering, you know, and so it's, There's got to be someone out there that can hear you and help you. And I mean, whether that's like a suicidal thing or just a new mom having a hard day or um, someone who doesn't want to be a mom and feels ashamed or whatever it is you're going through. There's someone else there who feels it too. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Do you have an inspirational quote that sums up your life journey? Wow, that's a really big one. And I was actually hoping to have like more of a life, you know, more life to live before I had to um, quote it. (laughs) Yes, but um, I do like life as a journey, not a destination. I also like, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. Um, Oh, I do have one. Okay, I got one. Uh, The barns burned down. Now I can see the moon. (sighs) They're all super trite and hallmarky, but, and I'm not, I'm really not an optimist most of the time. I'm really more of a pessimist, but I also think that so much we, like, the story makes so much more sense looking back than it does looking forward. Mm-hmm. You know, all of our stories. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for this. It has been really enjoyable. Um, do you want to just tell us uh, a little bit more about your book before we go? Absolutely. So my book is called uh, 10 Steps to Finding Happy. It's written by myself, um, a young adults writer, author, Selene Castrovia, and 24 expert writers in various fields. I have an art therapist. I have an art teacher. I have a jazz singer. I have... Um, a lawyer turned life coach. Who else do I have? I have a dance and movement therapist who currently works with a palliative care children's population. I, I have about a bazillion people from all different aspects. And the idea is, I'm sorry, all different places of life. And the idea is, you know, how do we each find happy? What is, what has made us happier? Sometimes it's something small, something big. And, you know, we also give 10 concrete steps that you could do. And sometimes they're little, sometimes they're big. Um, you know, learning a new skill actually fi- causes the neurotransmitters in your brain to fire in a different, more excitable 
pattern, which doesn't technically mean they're more excited, but we can pretend it does for the purpose of this conversation. Um, the book will be out on March 20th, 2020. You can pre-order it um, on amazon.com. And we also, I have been, anyone that's interested, I've been um, emailing a PDF copy and then praying that people write a review on Goodreads because we are using a small indie population, uh, indie publisher, despite the fact that we will have national distribution. But mm. so we're kind of winging and praying it and I'm relying on more of like a, you know, group populist movement to get the name of the book out there. Right. Oh, so. that's excellent. I'm excited to have it come out. Um, I'm excited too. Thank you. I could email you a PDF if you would like. I would love that. Okay. Love that. Thank you for listening in. Please remember to like, share, subscribe wherever you are watching or listening. You can find us at www.creativeu.ca. That's www.creative and the letter U .ca because we're in Canada reaching out to the whole world. See you next time on the Creative Soul Healing Podcast.